and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter. Joining me this week, we have... Uh, hi, I'm Juliet. I'm a writer and uh, sometimes collaborator in the Social Review. And I'm Joe, Steamed Hams on Twitter. The big news story of this week has been the fires in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, they have been burning at a record rate. Uh, there's been an 80% increase in the number of wildfires this year, with the majority occurring this month alone. Uh, wildfires are always common in the Amazon uh, during the summer when it's hot and dry, but they've been increasing at a rapid rate. $22 million in aid was pledged at the G7 summit by the UK, France, Germany, and so forth, um, which Brazil has since rejected, with President Bolsonaro saying that Europe should uh, reforest itself. Uh, the Amazon is known as the world's lungs, and it's been a hot-button issue because of climate change and 2019 in particular being a particularly um, a particularly prevalent year for climate change being in the news, what with record temperatures in the UK and elsewhere uh, and freak weather incidents. So Julia uh, is a Brazilian writer um, and is able to offer a perspective from what's going on in Brazil. I just wanted to ask you, um, there's been a lot of information and sometimes conflicting information going around on social media, uh, at least in the UK, um, on what exactly is causing the fires and why they're happening. So I wondered if, do we, do we know exactly what is causing the fires in the Amazon or is it still unclear? So it's a mix of like provoked fires because like um, there was a thing called a date of fire done by cattle, uh, cattle rangers where they uh, basically like start a fire to show that they were up to the task that President Bolsonaro was uh, imposing on them. But also, like you said, it's a season where uh, the fires are much more likely to get out of control. So it's a mix of uh, like man-made fires with um, climactic circumstances. And the reason why the climactic circumstances are uh, getting this bad, by the way, is because these are already effects of, like, massive climate change. It's not just, like, a random thing, this would have happened, you know, anyway, if anyone had lit a spark. No, this is, like, a, a, like already, like, an effect we're feeling. So, when you mention the man-made fires, what is the purpose of creating man-made fires in the Amazon? What, what, what do the people want to do with the land that they're burning down? Traditionally, man-made fires are used to, like, clear the land. You burn down this uh you burn down this the, the the trees. You either like use it for like cattle, other forms of ag agriculture like soy, like traditionally, like which is unspoken but uh, uh as a subject I think because it's not like as interesting a narrative, but uh soy is a big part of it. And then also you get uh the eventual um mining and, and sometimes uh, it's important to, to emphasize this. I think this is like an aspect that gets lost sometimes. Uh, sometimes this, these are done as measures of intimidation of indigenous people of the Amazon. Uh, you know, and like traditionally Brazilian governments have not helped uh, the traditional people of the Amazon. They have like um, neglected support. They have uh, sided with the agribusiness uh, over them. They have um, promised things and done half measures, but Bolsonaro has a, a has a, a philosophy that I think could be like defined as like outright genocidal, where he has all but said like, he has basically said 
that he wants uh, indigenous Brazilians to assimilate into Brazil, into Brazilian culture, or, you know, or be displaced. So these are the three main reasons. Um, clear the land for either mining and, or cattle or as measures of intimidation. So you mentioned soy as uh, one of the things which land is clear to, to grow. Um, at least in the UK, a big part of the reaction against the fires has been people saying that one of the main things you can do to stop things like this happening is to go vegan uh, or uh, cut down on your meat consumption. But soy is a major ingredient in many vegetarian foods, particularly um, like corn food and meat substitute foods. Uh, soy milk as well is the most traditional alternative to dairy milk. Would you say that that narrative is um, unfair, that the way to combat this is to go vegan? I don't think that the narrative is totally unfair, and like, uh, I don't mean to like discourage people from going like either um, vegetarian or vegan. I think uh, individual action has definitely its, its role. Uh, to play and uh, in, in any case I, I do think we should like try to cut down on meat consumption because it's like a very destructive uh, industry uh, the soy that's planted in Brazil is basically uh, used for uh, feeding cattle so it's not necessarily something that we're gonna be able to impact on but like uh, it's just to like uh, show that like it's not a hundred percent cattle issue and also like how deep the whole thing is how like because this is just like the the whole business model of the brazilian economy you know uh, it's like a growth like based on like selling uh grains and selling like basic uh primary like commodities you know i'm trying to like paint a bigger picture of how like historically deeply connected to um basically like destroying the Amazon uh, Brazilian economy has been, you know, even like through left-wing left uh, governments, which were better, obviously better, and obviously engaged in uh, helping, uh, helping green issues, even them had a certain like commitment to, to that agribusiness model. So it's just like a very like large issue in Brazil. So would you say that part of the um reason for the deforestation of fires causing the amazon is that historical context within brazil and um historical political attitudes towards uh the amazon and its indigenous people maybe more so than the global context of right-wing populism being embodied in bolsonaro um and climate change no i mean i think the thing is is that i think like people assume that bolsonaro like rose out of nowhere, like, he was just, like, a thing, like, a cancer that, that one day, like, showed up and grew and took over the body. A lot of the things that he has done are things that, like, existed within Brazilian society. And I think that's really important. My point when I say about um, Bolsonaro being, like, a product of Brazilian society is that, like, I think there is actually two, uh, two issues, um, to look at one, I think it's the, is like the most urgent issue, which is uh, this man is a sociopath and he will like burn out the planet because he does not believe in science. He does not believe in um, global warming. He doesn't give a fuck if everybody dies because he only has sympathy for people who are 
uh, like him, which is to say his family, his large adult sons who are useless, and uh, people who follow him. These are the only two people he has sympathy to. That's the issue, and I think to combat, combat this urgent issue of like uh, fighting Bolsonaro, everything is fair, fair play. One of the things I think we see, like for instance, is Macron, who is uh, center-right, no liberal, really like going for it and, and attacking Bolsonaro. And like, I literally think that's good. I think the best thing that can happen for the Brazilian people right now in fighting Bolsonaro is that like there is like a, a quite wide spectrum of basically like hatred or, or antipathy towards Bolsonaro. I want hating Bolsonaro to become a, a, a mainstream issue for the first world. You know, I want to see like Boris Johnson in a in a bus going no money for Brazilian Hitler. Like I want that. Because I think, like, he needs to, like, be beaten immediately, because this is, like, a really urgent point. But I also think there is, like, a larger point where I think um, there is no cohesive leftist answer in Brazil. And I think even throughout the world uh, to how a, a developing countries such as Brazil can uh, change its system from a destructive like growth model to a model that allows for the Amazon to exist and like and it's not just like giving money because that growth has to be constant in the economy where we're in so like you can give money now but like sooner or later it's going to become more lucrative to like destroy the Amazon again and then what so you have to like do like a, a very wide system change that like I think probably like the way I see it would basically be like destroying capitalism in the way that we know. Like maybe like we will have like a new thing, which is like green capitalism or or whatever. But like basically destroying this model of capitalism, uh, and that's a much wider and I think uh, like a much more left leftist led uh, issue that we have to like face as well. You know, and it's not just going to be like three or four people in in the Brazilian left. It's gonna have to be like uh, people across the world. Like I, I feel like this is not said enough. Developed countries are gonna have to put their shoulder to the wheel, and they're gonna have to help us out. And that's a fight that we like. We haven't even begun having because we're so concerned with the most urgent stuff. You talked a little bit about um, Macron and the international reaction. Uh, in terms of how that's being perceived uh, by Brazilian people, what sort of the reaction been to? That. I know Bolsonaro's talked to about it being like colonialist, co- colonialist. Um, but what's the wider reaction be? So, um, so far, which is why I think uh, we need like you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, what what should we do about the Amazon? Uh, my main advice would be pick up your phone, uh, open your email, write to your MP, or if you're somewhere else, write to your like. Uh, political representative and say, you know, hey, what are you doing about this Brazilian guy? What cannot happen is that this becomes like a cultural thing of Bolsonaro versus Macron. You know, you have to like, we have to like have sustained pressure over Bolsonaro so he has nowhere to go. 
Because right now, what we're seeing is, it's it's almost like laughable, because like all these like left-of-center Brazilian people are like, yeah, Macron is our guy, Macron is right, yeah, Macron's wife is great, uh, we're sorry that like he tried to humiliate, like, like it's like a whole like liberal versus conservative issue that I don't think uh, is helpful. It's also really curious, because one of the axes where this is being fought on is sovereignty. And, uh, you know, the way I see it, we have to destroy the concept of sovereignty, like, as fast as possible. <laughs> but uh, Bolsonaro had a, had a response which honestly could have been taken from some of the old guard leftists in Brazil, which was like, he accused Macron of being a colonialist. So basically, like, part of the issue is that, like, they see the Amazon as a Brazilian resource and therefore the Brazilians have the others who see it as a global issue. So therefore it has to be preserved for the world. It has been really like divided into like partisan lines, which I don't think it's good. I think uh, what what we should do is like try to cause like e enough like economic damage and e enough damage from Bolsonaro that Brazilians are disgusted to be associated with him, you know? And he's pushed because he he's very sensitive to bottom line uh to like economic pressures and he's pushed by these economic pressures to do better and not uh, step out of line it's interesting um talking about putting sustained international pressure on bolsonaro because just before we started recording the podcast i read that he's released a new statement he said i will accept the aid from the g7 as long as macron retracts some of his rude, in quotation marks, comments about me. Obviously, that's tying into the narrative you mentioned about this being a Macron versus Bolsonaro fight. But do you think that if more countries side up with Macron and we put on a kind of like sustained, conjoined international effort, then Bolsonaro will have to give in? Or do you think that that's going to cause him to double down? And he's like, no, you have to be nice to me. And then... I will do what you want. The thing about Bolsonaro, and I feel like this is not said enough. Um, first of all, I want to say the first thing about Bolsonaro is that he's stupid. He's an idiot. He's bad. And like, do not respect him. Do not show him any deference, any respect. You know, this is a man who's totally obsessed with buttholes. Like, we, we have to like cast him as a stupid, moronic villain trying to murder the world because it has to be uh, politically profitable for people in the first world to hit him. He has to be associated with failure, uh, stupidity, and uh, just lack of manners. I, I, I literally think this this is important. Like, I feel like you have to, like, really make him a villain. But uh, the thing about Bolsonaro as well is that he's extremely weak. I know it doesn't seem so, but the Brazilian Congress has, I think, about 26, 20 uh, parties or something. And all of them are, most of them are extremely corrupt and have no, like, basic line. And all that they want is to pass legislation as told by the lobby, lobbies that back them. What happens once that Bolsonaro's uh, approach becomes damaging, becomes, like, uh, results into loss of profit, is that the Congress turns against him. And, like, this is basically what happened with D Dilma Rousseff. 
she did not have political skill. She um, was not like good at handling them. And what happens? What happened was that the corrupt people on Congress went, "Well, we don't need this," you know. So the Brazilian Congress is very like open to the possibility of bullying a vote of no confidence in presidents. That's something that they do. Basically, like, the more pressure there is over Bolsonaro, uh, the more the Brazilian Congress starts to be like, mm, maybe this isn't profitable enough. Maybe I can, you know, put some other guy who's gonna keep this under wraps or gonna, you know, toe the line more and be nicer, and then I don't need to, like, deal with him. So, like, this is the best thing to do, is, like, make... Uh, make Bolsonaro, like, damaging to the Brazilian economy. So do you think we would see sort of a, a significant improvement um, following the impeachment of Bolsonaro? Um, are there signs that uh, the politicians that would come in and replace uh, him um, have a better grasp of the issue? Is anyone better than Bolsonaro? Is that the question? Yes. Not because these people care about the Amazon, they don't give a fuck, but because uh, they understand that diplomacy has certain rules. A lot of people are aesthetically better than Bolsonaro. And I know this sounds stupid, but like being aesthetically better is already like a big improvement because it means that uh, people on the ground don't have like outright approval. It's the same thing with, uh, with Trump and white supremacy. White supremacy has always existed in the policies of the uh, Republican Party and the Democrat Party. But having Trump giving outright approval to those tactics means that that violence can uh, increase quite a lot. So it's the same with uh, Bolsonaro and the Amazon. So should he be replaced by his VP, I think the situation would improve marginally. Is the situation going to improve significantly? I don't think so, because you still have the wider issue of, like, one of the problems with the left in Brazil is that it, it became basically represented by one man, and that man is in prison. And we can get into the issues of, like, Lula's in prison. I'm, 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 like, very pro-Lula, etc., but, you know, undeniably, having one man represent the entire uh, project of the left was a bad choice. Because in the end, when it was, was down to uh, either this or anything from the left, people chose, chose the worst man on earth. So the issue of like, you know, would deposing Bolsonaro solve the Amazon? No. Because to do that, you're gonna have to like, have a wider, better project. And like I said, I think that project has to be left-led, but the left in Brazil is very, like, sectarian. Uh, it's very, like... I don't like to, like, go into the narrative of out of touch, but it is undeniably very college-educated and, you know, uh, has a certain, like, fear of talking about certain issues. Like, it has a fear of, like, even addressing public security concerns, which were one of the big things that Bolsonaro wrote on, we can, like, and I'm not saying we should, like, you know, be tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, but, like, there are ways of talking about these things. There are not just being terrified of even opening that dialogue. If you want to save the Amazon, you're gonna have to, like, need to save the Brazilian left, and there hasn't been a proper, like, a proper build-up of that mo uh, movement. 
because of a series of structural issues. One of which it's basically like the left in Brazil has to worship the king in exile, which is Lula. I don't want to seem too tough on Lula. Like, if he got free tomorrow and it was like there were elections, I would vote for him happily. But I'm just saying that, like, there is a structural issue, there's a lack of structure when it comes to Brazilian leftism. And in fact, you often see, like, these issues of like environmental concern being led by people of the center right which like i said they would represent amazing improvements to the amazon because they would not uh encourage overt action but they're not going to be a systemic solution on the domestic political context in brazil does there seem to be public appetite um for taking action against Bolsonaro over this? You know, do Brazilian people and Brazilian media seem angry over the Amazon fires, or is it, do people not really seem to care? Since every question that's been asked and this has been answered with a yes, but also no, this one also, yes, but also no. The Brazilian people love the Amazon, but they love the Amazon as an abstract concept. You know? I can't think of, like, an equivalent to, like, the British uh, mindset, Perhaps, like, I don't know. Would it be something like the NHS? Like, they... Yes, yes. But, like, uh, the NHS is more concrete. You know what I mean? It's, like, something that you love and you're proud of, but only, like, in the, in the, in, like, in the abstract sense. Like, there are, like, there are, like, if you were to interview a hundred Brazilians, ten of them would be Bolsonaro stands who go, like, yeah, we should kill those fucking, like, uh, indigenous people and those fucking um, jaguars and fuck them and I hope they all choke in black smoke. 20 of them would be, like, uh, environmentalists minded and the rest of them would be like, yeah, okay, but uh, there, there are literal scenes of, uh, you know, warfare in my neighborhood and also this country doesn't have fucking sanitation. I like the Amazon, but I don't care. The thing is that those 10% get much more of a voice over uh, Brazilian politics because they convince the rest of the people that they have the solutions for the other everyday issues. You know, it's very hard to care about the... And, like, I, this, uh, I find it, like, absolutely heartbreaking. But it's, like, very hard to care about the Amazon when like you're dealing with the fact you might come home to find your son dead because of stray bullets you know like this is like this is the level we're dealing with like these people are like they, they don't have the space to care about this thing politically i feel like what bolsonaro is doing with the amazon is going to become very very unpopular and people are going to be very very mad but will that result into action will that uh result into active political fight i don't think so like uh the historical precedent tells me that absolutely not the only way for that to become like an actual issue in congress is for everywhere else to tell him that if you don't fucking toe the line you're gonna lose money and there are enough members of the beef lobby which is like the the one of the most powerful caucus in in the brazilian congress who are smart enough to know that uh, there is such a thing as being too obvious. They're, they're like very big um, 
beef and soy lobbyists. Like, there are very powerful people within those lobbies who, you know, have clocked the, like, you know what? This is not worth the trouble. If this is gonna start giving me problems, if people are gonna start talking about sanctions, you know, I'm Brazilian. I have family in Brazil. I often am in Brazil. Sanctions would affect me. I don't want them to happen, but I cannot like emphasize this enough. Like threatening sanctions on Brazil is the best way to make some very important people start shitting themselves. Once they clock that this is not like profitable, they they will go, "You know what? We can't be bothered with this." And that's the best way to like create like a political uh, a, an angry Brazilian like reaction to Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro like for all the authoritarian bluster that he has he has not shut down Congress or anything so he is technically I hope to God probably you know permanently bound by democratic means and democratic means means that if someone gets angry enough like people in Congress will be like hey bro I prefer to get reelected than having to deal with this. And welcome to the culture section of the Social Review podcast, where this week we are talking about um, culture as a whole, actually, uh, and media criticism and uh, how uh, media criticism and analysis has formed a part of digital activism in the 21st century, whether it's okay to uh, like something just for the sake of liking it, um, or uh, whether it's okay to stop liking things because you'll take a deeper look at their um, subtext um, and point out things which are potentially a little bit dodgy, whether that's intentional or not. Julia's still here to talk about that. And we've also got uh, Eugenie, our uh, regular co-panelist. Hello. Follow me on Twitter, as always, at MemesTD. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not following her on Twitter at this rate and you're a regular listener, I don't know what's... I, you're missing no out you. on me <laughs> crying about the end of my master's degree. I don't know what else anyone could ever wish for on there for their internet usage, but there we go. <laughs> that's, that's all I want on my Twitter feed. This, this idea spawned from uh, 500 Days of Summer and the recognition that it has turned 10. Um, it's a film which was very popular at the time of release. Uh, it's very twee. Um, and has become horrifically dated um, in terms of its style. It's kind of like, oh, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt saying, I like the Smiths, is now would not fly uh, in, in a mainstream indie movie. Um, but also its, it's attitude towards um, women in relationships um, has come at a great scrutiny. There was a very good article in The New Statesman, um this week there's also an honest trailer about it um covering the same kind of themes i just wanted to open this up to both of you what is your relationship like with media which you recognize has potentially problematic or dated societally dated elements um are you still able to find that you enjoy those things um or are there some are there some examples where you're like I actively try to distance myself from this now. I think that's an interesting question in the age of quote-unquote council culture where I feel like uh, to some extent we are thinking potentially what a lot of people are thinking a lot more critically about what we engage with. Um, speaking as someone who spent my teen years, I actually, re- I actually think 500 Days of Summer is a good film. This is my like... I think maybe this has become a contrarian hot take, and I don't know. I mean, you kind of read about the director's opinion about him, whatever. This is a a death of the author reading. But um, I think you can look at that film and say that's a film where Summer, you know, the, the, the... 
the kind of distant girlfriend who isn't giving him what it wants, even though he she very clearly says at the beginning she doesn't want to be in like a kind of committed. She's not looking for like a committed long term relationship, and he just kind of ignores that and batters on through. Um, and then when he gets his heart broken, like deeply resents her for it, and just about gets over it by the end. But yeah, so I I see that as a film where it's interesting that kind of you see the cycles of revisionism in that kind of going from oh it's a love story and she's a bitch to being a bit more like oh maybe this film was problematic about women question mark but uh to hopefully maybe a kind of slightly more nuanced reading of it but um ultimately believe think that you know on your question about our relationship with quote-unquote problematic culture and all that stuff it just makes me think of i believe it's one of the all-time great onion articles which is uh women women stops being feminist for half an hour to enjoy tv program which is basically the kind of level to which i've got to these days like (laughs) my days of like you know there are certain things i'm willing just to look past it if i enjoy it or if i'm interested in it or like whatever it might be um obviously there are there are some media items which like might be so like heinously misogynistic for instance you can't really move beyond that but a lot of the time i think i've just given up really i don't know how you feel about that julia yeah, um, I just want to say that, like, I kind of agree with you on on the summer. Like, I forgot how many days of summer. 500 days of summer? 500. There are yeah. 500. So, yeah, I kind of agree with you, like, on that movie. Like, it is actually not as, like, nice guy TM as people, like, make it out to be. Because, like, it, it, it is, like a perspective of narrative like it is all through his perspective so you're not supposed to be like oh this is a hundred percent the truth be- like it's supposed to be like quite subjective but also like i don't know like i'm quite older than the rest of the social review people and i've just reached like this point in my life where i just don't have the energy i just don't have the energy of like making like enjoying media like activism which is not to say i think like media criticism has no place like no i think like if we're gonna have better media we should have media criticism and then like um hey i'm just as human as anyone else i enjoy watching those youtube half an hour analysis by people talking about like cartoons you know those things that people do where i like kind of break with other people is that just like it's like, okay, this has issues, we can do better art than this, or this tackle this ba- badly, and what does that say about our culture in this period of time, or the culture of that period of time? Like, I'm totally pro that. What I can't do is just, like, make that, like, an emotional and political narrative where, like, you have to watch the show because it's so woke, and it's, like, it's so important, and, like, Disney cast, like a non-white person once ever after decades of not casting it non-white people you know disney realized that non-white people have money and that means that they're good now like i can't do that like anymore i just don't have the energy because you know trump is president and bolsonaro is president like i just i'm tired like like the the the, the amount of time i had to be angry at media like actively really really angry and like really like politically engaged with media like has gone away kind of how are both of your attitudes towards media which stars 
people such as like uh, Kevin Spacey or Johnny Depp um, or any of the other figures who got caught up in the Me Too, um, the Me Too movement. Do you still find yourself trying to enjoy the films and shows that they were in anyway, um, or is that where you would set the line of like, no, I don't want to watch media which was created by uh, abusers or predators or generally shitty people? I think that's an interesting question because it's so subjective to your own experience. I found that there are like different people that I react differently to it and I feel I feel the kind of need to um, kind of behave in different ways. So um, I was thinking just as you were speaking then about um, how much I used to like there's like a couple of Woody Allen films like uh, really early ones like Love and Death which is like quite an obscure one and then obviously like Annie Hall and the rest of it but I just have no and like ultimately they were important to me at a period of time in my life so it would be silly to pretend that I like never liked them because that's just not true um but on the other hand I I I feel no need now to like go to the cinema and I wouldn't want to see any more of his films and spend spend give him money kind of give him like the the um the kind of publicity and all that kind of thing. I I have no interest in engaging with that anymore. In the same way, I mean I never felt emotionally connected to him as an actor, but like I would never see a Mel Gibson film in the cinema. I just wouldn't. But I think our relationship with these things is so difficult because a lot of the time it is connected to to, it might be a kind of important period as like a teenager or like when you were like growing up at a certain time um I definitely remember reading a piece I'll have to link it to it on my Twitter I have to dig it up uh, written by someone who was a, like a diehard Don- Johnny Depp fan for like all of their teenage years and how difficult it was to like deal with the fact that this idol that you'd have for so long was just a terrible person um and you know how complicated that is but in general I like to think I'm going to try and like not give like if I find out something about someone that affects my opinion of them so much I don't feel like I can engage with that content anymore at least with not like going out and spending you know giving them lots of money and you know in a way that like listening to a Wagner on Spotify doesn't like make me feel uncomfortable with grappling with like 19th century anti-Semitism because like Wagner isn't alive at the moment benefiting from my like streaming clicks when I'm uh, trying to trying to write my thesis but um you know if I make the decision to go and see you know Roman Polanski has a film coming out uh this this autumn and I foresee another great wave of the publicity cycle kind of contending with that um yeah, I wouldn't feel the need to, I wouldn't go and see that in the cinema just because I don't, there's no, there's nothing, you're not doing anything there apart from kind of tacitly giving some kind of approval. But, you know, it's so complicated and everyone has personal relationships with these things. So I think you kind of almost have to take it on a case by case basis. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, Julia. Like, who's your like problematic fave that haunts you now? So yeah, like on the subject of Me Too, I think it's kind of different because I think a lot of these people have not been punished and the thing about this, these people have not been punished is that like they haven't been punished because they have power I can't watch a Woody Allen movie because there has never been any reckoning on what Woody Allen do- uh, did like any at all and it was known and it was not just known it was something that he obsessively put into his movies and like listen I- I'm not saying this like to judge people who who 
who still connect to Woody Allen. I honestly think that, like, Anyhow is a great movie. And it, like, basically every other piece of media that I like has been, on some level, inspired by Anyhow. I can't, like, separate art from the artist in this case, because I think, like, under the, the structure of, like, studio business, me uh, continue to watching this person, continue to give them money and support them, is to give them um, a certain, like, power. So, like, that's why, like, I consider me too different. I completely I think agree. That, Just stuff button. Me as well. Like, like Kevin Spacey has not suffered any, anything from this, uh, from, from what happened. Oh, yeah, he's been shunned. Yeah, sure. People get shunned all the time from Hollywood. They stay out for a while, and then they come back. We all know that this happens. So, like, unless we, we send a message and say, I'm not going to watch this movie, and I'm not going to give him cover, and he's not going to make money, you know, unless we, we, we punish him, like, financially, we're helping him. And, like, listen, Hollywood is filled to the brim with cases of abuse and horrifying stories of sexual behavior. Like, to the point that, like, if you enjoy anything about Hollywood, you, you've, at some point, you know, gave, gave money to these horrible people. But, I think when it comes to, to people caught in the scandal of Me Too, specifically, um, we should avoid giving that money. You know, I think that's different from, I started to like watch a show, like a really bad show, please don't watch, uh, called The Magicians uh, lately, and it has like a really oh like, disgusting like uh, sexual assault storyline. None of the people involved, as far as I know, did anything. So like, that feels different to me. Like, I can enjoy this thing that's bad without feeling like I'm giving uh, cover to like actual real life abuse, which I think this is like the difference for me between the two the two issues. I don't think that like enjoying bad media or watching bad media or engaging with this bad media and also it's not to say that like everybody has to enjoy media that like triggers them or, or upsets them or makes them like feel bad. Like I can't watch Handmaid is Tale. Like it's too much. It's different when it's like the media or the art or the work from the creator who is benefiting from a system of power that we're giving money uh, to this. So I honestly think, like, don't give money to Woody Allen, don't give money to Roman Polanski, don't go participate in anything relating to the YC. Not because, you know, you can't enjoy uh, problematic media, you absolutely can, but because in this case, enjoying problematic media goes directly to build um, a system where accountability never comes to these powerful people. So do either of you think that we can separate art from the artist? Is that something which can ever be separated? I don't think that it can. Um, and especially in, in those examples of Woody Allen films and Kevin Spacey films, you know that your um, implicit support of the art in paying to see it at the cinema um is supporting the artist in turn even if you claim to disagree with what the artist has done going back to what we were originally talking about with regards to media which maybe is problematic in itself but its creators aren't necessarily or at least they're not openly um problematic i'm using problematic as a catch-all term you know whose creators are perhaps 
not um, abusers. Who are, they're, they're nothing like the Kevin Spaceys and the Woody Allens who we're referring to. If you can't separate the art from the artist, then um, is it still okay to be supporting art made by uh, the, that other category of people as well, who are obviously on like, you know, are not as bad in quotation marks as um, known abusers um, and terrible people such as Spacey and Alan and Weinstein and so forth. Uh, I feel like we should separate, like, I feel like there should be, like, a thing which is, like, shitty and, uh, abusive, and what happens is that, like, all those things get, uh, lumped together into, like, one thing which is problematic. Like, here's the thing, guys, every piece of media that you enjoy, even your favorite piece of media, which you think is really great, is shitty on some level. Because, guess what? Society evolves and views that this very podcast is going to be saying right now, in 20 years, or by the speed that things are going, in 10 or 5 years, are going to be considered bad. And we're going to learn and we're going to be feeling bad that we said those things. Everything in the world has problems, you know, is, is basically shitty on some level. This is different to me from abusive or like the example of Mel Gibson so like actively massively racist who is this to stoke racism those things are very different to me and I think like we should really have that separation we should stop using the word problematic or just use problematic like more commonly but not conflating those two issues I think that should be like a really strong separation because like it's one thing to be like, oh, I really enjoy Fleabag, but I don't think that, like, this representation of, like, English life is really accurate because it's actually really posh, you know, the big discourse that was going on. To, like, well, I don't really like this show because this guy was keeping, like, hundreds of women in his basement and killing them. Like, these things are different. Like, let's not conflate them. I think this is really important, you know? Yeah, there's that kind of differentiation between, like, people you are like, you should be in jail or you shouldn't have a career, like, you know, those kind of people versus the the people who um, who maybe have, you know, been called out for poor behavior and have behaved badly, and you know, and as Julia says, that's a lot of people. But, uh, you know, you can kind of feel like, you know, this shouldn't mean you're, like, relegated from all society forever um yeah and the kind of conflation of the two is unhelpful because i think it also leads to this some of the the kind of reactionary stuff against me too is quite i think built on this idea that oh that they they're saying that you know um picking an example you know the aziz anzari thing which was like he went on a bad date the person had a bad time it was it was not great like it was just all like it also was a very poorly written article, which didn't help the babe.net one. But, um, you know, so there's there's that versus like, you know, Harvey Weinstein is a sexual predator who, who you know, assaulted and raped multiple women who should be in jail if there was any justice in the world. You know, and that's the kind of separation you need to build up. Otherwise, you might, you know, slip into this space where, you know, you open yourself up to these kind of criticisms that, 
you're cheating not that I ever want to say that we should like couch the language in which we discuss like these these problems and I and I also wouldn't want to tell people that have like you know if you're that person you were on the bad date and you felt pressured to have sex and all that kind of thing I also wouldn't want to hear someone saying that you know oh that's not as bad and like obviously because it is horrible for you if you're the person experiencing that but if we if we take the step outwards and think about these things you know as as a culture we got to think of the the way in which harassment is a scale and they are interrelated and one could lead to the escalation of another but you know one is not the equivalent of 10 if if that makes sense with regards to the um conflation i i completely agree with both of you um so it happens in two respects it happens from the reaction against me to element like you mentioned eugenie um and people don't see a difference between what Aziz Ansari did and what Kevin Spacey did. Um, and it will just be the attitude of like, oh, everyone's out to get you these days. You can't say or do anything, you know, that kind of thing. And then uh, from the left and the progressives, um, there is also a conflation. And I remember at the time of the Aziz Ansari thing, there were many um, people I saw writing and tweeting about this and so forth um, who were actively conflating them, including... Aziz Ansari on their like list of people not sports alongside Kevin Spacey um, and uh, people of his ilk and I think it's like you know it's easy to understand why the reactionaries opt for the approach that they do because they're reactionary um, but why do we think that um, progressives conflate the categories as well? I think this is where I out myself as a quite old person I think it's because they're young I think uh, internet ac- activism is like predominantly done by very young people. It's great that they're that they want to be involved, but like there's a certain like incapacity to se- separate this these kind of things. And again, like I don't mean to like say that like oh, it's because young people are stupid and they're all snowflakes. Not at all. But I think it's because like because you're like coming into those issues early on and you're learning and um you're absorbing all these things. It's kind of like difficult to realize that things exist on a spectrum. You sort of like want to like toss everything into the fire. Which which honestly, I am not saying that that's like a bad thing. Like it's a bad impulse. It comes from like a very like important place. The thing about like tossing everything into the fire is that like you're going to get yourself burned. And I don't think it's helped by the way that the internet culture is constructed, which is like everything is like constant and it's like a frenzy. So like when the Me Too stuff started, we didn't want to like have a conversation about, I think that was one of the things, like I'm not criticizing the Me Too movement. It's a very important movement. Uh, Don't trust anyone who like criticizes it, but I don't think there was a conversation like deep enough into uh, how much of entertainment power is built to help um, white rich men like Weinstein to perpetrate abuse throughout Hollywood's history. Uh, How much of the studio system was built for that, you know. Instead, it became about uh, how do we get rid of all these men. And again, I am not saying that that's like an impulse that I don't understand. I don't understand the opposite. I don't understand someone not being furious at those cases. What happened is that like, okay, let's get rid of everybody. You also end up like throwing like 
people who were like who did bad things but did bad things on a one because they were within a society that is a, a society and a system that is built to help them do this you know instead of having conversations about how like how we dismantle the structure of uh, of power that prevents women from having accountability over what happened to them over like the 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 horrible violations that happened to them and i and i think like this is not said enough in the case of weinstein weinstein used his power to block careers uh it was very much not just about you know a guy disgusting guy like forcing himself onto a woman although that aspect is very important but also like a man deciding through sex like who gets to go forward and who gets to, to stay so like this is what i'm saying like in terms of power you know so like not enough of these conversations were about that and not enough of these conversations were about the power of sexism sexism isn't just like men are assholes and horrible monsters although they are but but also it's about structures of power so that's why i think like this conflation happens is like this uh thing on the internet where instead of like looking into uh power as it exists it looks at, at individual cases and it wants to like burn them that burn them down and that honestly like again not criticizing me too not criticizing the young people i just think that like uh at some point some other people who are older and who are like voices in the media should have steered the conversation towards dismantling these structures you know and made it less about the frenzy of of everything and the the, the eagerness to like punish which again completely completely understandable but not helpful towards like seeing the whole specter of it seeing the immensity of it i think you're completely right in thinking about these things in relation to power structures and how we got to move into these larger critiques really and you know as cathartic and uh righteous and you know in the name of justice it is good to um kind of go after and punish these people but yeah we have to think about the way in which uh, the whole systems have been created in order to protect them um, and uh, and yeah I, I, I would just completely agree <laughs> I'm obsessive about this podcast you must remember this like I'm obsessive about about the stories of Hollywood and I'm obsessive about how these power structures were built you know and how they were built on permission uh, from in, in the case of, like, even the case of the state, you know? Because, like, why didn't the police go investigate Weinstein at no point? I 100% agree with the anger of people. I, I get it. I just think that, like, we, we, we also need people who can steer the conversation to look at how sexism is a spectrum and not, like, just a violence, you know? the violence is the last last moment like when it reaches the point where violence is happening is because uh the the structure that built that violence uh is very very solid i think that also applies to a lot of like critiques of 
of um kind of structural I guess oppression I was just when you were speaking there I was thinking about like what I feel like the consistent problem with the way that a lot of people engage with um anti-semitism is they kind of perceive there to be if someone has a swastika and is doing like uh, you know reposting cartoons which are like clearly anti-semitic or like quoting the the protocols of the elders of zion or engaging in neo-nazism like people feel very like willing and like they understand that and they can call that out because you know they can perceive that for what it is but you know the the insinuation that british jews are more loyal to israel than they are to to the british state for example um might be something that yeah i i read that in a um in a blog on verso um you know and there seem to be i mean i'm not sure how many people actually read those little things that go on the verso blog but it didn't feel like there was any particular backlash towards that or any kind of engagement with that as even you know as much as you can cite the popularity of israel from some census that was taken a while ago or whatever among like a subsection of british jews it just feels like a completely it is an anti-semitic thing to insinuate and you know as you say like these things existing in in the layers that they they do you've got to be aware that there's a as i kind of said earlier there's a point one and a point ten and you've got to think about how they all relate to each other yes and how one can build into the other and um yeah thinking about the structural relationship between oppressive forces in society and the way they 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 inhabit all of us i think is very significant there um not to drag us away from like culture and towards the the specter of political debate on this podcast but (laughs) can't resist it's all linked anyway (laughs) we wouldn't be doing this uh we wouldn't have a culture section unless it wasn't all linked there are numerous anti-Semitic tropes um, within the media itself, intentional and unintentional. We were we were saying uh, just before we started recording about the goblins and Harry Potter, who work at Gringotts um, as as a primary example, um, and that's completely unintentional. But it's nonetheless an example of how um, those things become normalised because they aren't called out and challenged, even if it is on a Verso blog, and then become part of the mainstream media psyche. And before you know it, you've got dodgy media. No, but also, like, relating to, like, and actually, like, talking about anti-Semitism specifically, because that's not, like, I'm not Jewish, so I don't know. But, like, I I also think that, like, there's a thing where people assume that, like, either that, like, racism is such a, like, absurd, monstrous action that they can never be racist casually, which is not true. Like, most people in the world, you know, even the ones who have non-white friends, who, lo- like, marry non-white people, who have non-white children, who love them deeply, are capable of being, like, casually racist. Like, it, either they, they think it's, like, this monstrous thing, or, like, and they can't be it. Or, like, they act like every minor infraction implicates on this on this amount of like hidden monstrous behavior most people have done and said uh racist things and that's because they live in racist societies but that doesn't mean that all of them are like hidden neo-nazis or something nor does it mean 
that you should give it a pass, or that that, that is not racism, that's just like the way it is. Like, those things matter. I feel like, I feel bad because like, we made this conversation about 500 Days of Summer about like, super <laughs> I was, you know what i was just thinking about that what a what a way we have moved from no but i <laughs> yeah. think it's i think it's interesting to kind of tap into this in a bit more detail because as we were saying so often the kind of deeper complexities of this are kind of brushed aside or people don't really want to keep poking the scab as it were but it's good to kind of pick at it a bit um and see where it leads us Thanks for listening to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. As per usual, the music you heard was Sweet of a Mouth, composed by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks very much to Eugenie, Joe and Julia for coming on and uh, talking on this week's episode. Uh, And if you're particularly interested in the discussion on the Amazon, you can go and read Julia's article, which she's written for the New Statesman, uh, titled The World Has the Power to Make Brazil's Bolsonaro Pay for His Destruction of the Amazon. Do go give it a read. It's very good. Otherwise, thanks very much for listening, and you'll hear us again next week. Goodbye.